Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Last week we talked about libertarian freedom of the will and uh, the Arminian position on that. And so now we are going to talk about the Calvinist understanding of human freedom and divine sovereignty. So let's jump right into it. As with Arminianism, there are variations to the presentation here amongst Calvinists. I'll be presenting what is called soft determinism or compatibilism. And again, this is against what is called hard determinism or um, just you know, straight out determinism. Um, many argue that soft determinism or compatibilism is the classical Calvinist position. And whenever you read commentaries on the Reformed Confessions, they'll point out that this is the position presented. There are a few, however, who will argue that hard determinism is classical Calvinism. Um, from my own reading and understanding, Soft determinism is the classical Calvinist position, along with interlapsarianism being reflected in um, the confessions and everything like that. But it's it's a debated point, so it's worth mentioning that it's a debated point. Um, furthermore, there are some who limit the deterministic aspects of compatibilism to just soteriology, predestination, and election, while placing libertarian freedom of the will in the general understanding of the human will. So what I mean is that there are some Calvinists, though I don't meet very many, who will say that we have libertarian freedom of the will in every aspect except for soteriology. Uh, soteriology is compatibilistic uh, with predestination election, etc. Like I said, though, th that isn't a normative Calvinist position. And so this is all to say that like Arminianism, there is some diversity with reformed confessional folk, you know, people who hold to the London Baptist Confession or the Three Forms of Unity or the Westminster Standards, they're going to be more uniform, and those are going to be the standards of the official position, though. Uh, Calvinism has behind it this confessional thrust that Arminianism, as far as I've been able to tell, doesn't have. So there's going to be a little bit more unity in Calvinistic understandings, but there's still some diversity. And so I would say here, like, if, if we're talking about, well, what is calvinism proper then you would go to the canons of dort where the official understanding of calvinism was put down on paper and so that's that um and again just like arminianism there are eventually levels of mystery as you push into these concepts that we cannot fully comprehend we do the best we can with special revelation that is scripture so let's talk about compatibilism First, we will begin by discussing human freedom in Calvinism, which, like libertarianism, Calvinism teaches that human beings are real, free agents in the world, and human beings will always choose from various options. At the same time, Calvinists disagree with libertarianism in regards to God's role in these choices and even other external influences' degree of influence on a person's choice. And so, as we go through this, episode, you'll see a little bit more compare and contrast with libertarianism as we go through. But the axiom of libertarianism that man can choose otherwise than all of his inclinations and motives is denied in the Calvinistic understanding of human will. Calvinists insist that man will always choose in accordance with his nature and his greatest desire, even when he appears to not desire his choice that he chose. Uh, this can be illustrated in various ways, but here's a simple one. 
uh, a man who must choose between a salad and a pizza. Say this man, by all accounts, looks like he does not want that salad, and yet he chooses to eat that salad anyway. So did he choose contrary to his desires? Well, it's not that simple. He chose against one of his desires because of a stronger desire to be healthy and eat a salad instead of a pizza. So the compatibilist would say that the difference between libertarianism and compatibilism in regards to human freedom is that in libertarianism, the will is the force that is free while it neglects the person who is the one who operates within the will. But persons are driven by various factors. John Frame states, quote, compatibilist freedom means that even if every act we performed is caused by something outside of ourselves, such as natural causes or God, we are still free for we can still act according to our character and desires. And that's in John Frame's The Doctrines of God, uh, page 136. So this is to say that the actions of the individuals are actions that they freely want and desire to make. This is not them going against their will. This is them moving in their will towards what they want. John Murray summarizes that, quote, we are responsible for our acts because they are a result of our volition. And that is in Free Agency, page 61. So just as libertarians recognize the limitations of human nature, you know, we can't naturally choose to breathe underwater. So do Calvinists. And thankfully, we agree on that point. But there's also this component that we make choices that are consistent with our nature and that all of the complexities that come with our person are factors whenever it comes to making choices. And usually both Arminianism and Calvinism will agree with that um, and point to God's will being limited because of his nature and character. For example, God will not sin. It is contrary to his nature to sin. He will not sin. So his nature is limited to not sinning, right? So humans are limited in their nature as creatures of God. However, Contrary to libertarianism, the will is not self-determining, but it is driven by the person making the choice, and freedom is being able to act and choose according to that which one desires. There is no constraining what that individual has desires to do. In the Calvinist position, quote, people possess this freedom because God has created us as moral free agents, end quote. Uh, and that is Sean Wright, 40 Questions About Calvinism, page 79. So the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 9, opens with, God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to good or evil. And so the London Baptist Confession of Faith talking about before the fall, the will has a natural liberty to act in accordance with its nature and act on its choice. It can choose different courses. Further, the will is not forced, nor is it determined to either good or evil. Man was created with a will that can either do good or evil. Of course, the next chapter of the London Baptist Confession of Faith will describe the fall of man and the radical chains of man's nature, wherein man will lose the ability to will any spiritual good accompanying salvation. Even after the fall, however, man is still free to act in accordance with his nature. And you can find these chapters in the section on um, free will, which is present in the Westminster Standards and the London Baptist Confession of Faith. So in Calvinism, man is a free moral agent who makes choices that are based on what he desires. There is nothing forced upon the man. He is getting what he wants. It's not like he's being held at gunpoint and being told he can't 
choose otherwise. And so with that free agency of man and the human will and Calvinism put forward, we can now continue into compatibilism more specifically. So compatibilism is a belief that holds two positions in tension. So quoting Wright and 40 Questions About Calvinism, these are the positions in tension. One, God is absolutely sovereign, but in his sovereignty never functions in a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. And two, human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions, and so forth. And they are rightly held accountable for those actions, but this characteristic never functions as to make God absolutely contingent, meaning dependent on something outside of himself. And so compatibilism holds intention that God is absolutely sovereign. And at the same time, people are truly free agents responsible for their actions and choices. Peterson and Williams and their work, Why I'm Not an Arminian, says the following, quote, the Calvinist notion of divine sovereignty is often portrayed as little more than a theological gloss upon a doctrine of philosophical determinism. But this misses the Calvinist point, and it certainly misses the biblical witness of the sovereignty of God. The providential and sovereign power of God is neither an abstract nor a distant force. Rather, through personal power, God affects his will in the world. And, quote, The air of identifying divine sovereignty with determinism or fatalism comes from the abstraction of the issue into impersonal terms. Divine sovereignty is not a blind and deterministic force any more than God himself is some impersonal it. The same is true when we speak about human freedom and accountability. It is our freedom and our responsibility. Peterson and Williams are further helpful in underlying that God is Lord over his creation, and this does include freedom and responsibility of human beings, but as creatures, we are never given freedom from God because he is God and we are creatures, but instead we are given a freedom of creaturely existence. In compatibilism, God's determination of his plans to come to pass includes the free choices and actions of human beings. God is the active agent of history who is able to ensure that his will is fulfilled. To quote Peterson and Williams again, quote, Neither does God's sovereignty make human beings mindless pawns or exonerate them of responsibility for their choices and actions, nor do human responsibility and freedom frustrate God's ability to realize his will. Scripture teaches both that God is always the sovereign king over his creation and that human beings are always accountable for their actions. Both are assumed as true throughout the biblical record, and neither is seen as limiting the other. Paul Helm goes so far as to speak of divine sovereignty and human responsibility as fixed points within the biblical drama. And we can quote the London Baptist Confession of Faith here again. Uh, chapter 5 on Providence, section 2, points out, quote, Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything that befalls by any chance or without his providence, Yet by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. End quote. So it is by God's decree, wisdom, and knowledge that all things occur with purpose, but, quote, according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. God is the first cause, but his will is worked through second causes. So when the confession says necessarily here, it means those things and the natural laws of the universe. Freely points to the moral actions of rational creatures, i.e. human beings. 
In regards to sin, the confession in section 4 states that his providence extends itself to sinful actions, quote, yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceed only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy in righteousness, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So it is here that I want to pause and go back to the description of Jacob Arminius by Roger Olson from our last section. And I'm hoping the reason why will be evident uh, whenever I read off it. So this is what Roger Olson says about Jacob Arminius. Quote, God is the first cause of whatever happens. Even a sinful act cannot occur without God as its first cause, because creatures have no ability to act without their creator, who is their supreme cause for existence. And when a sinful act occurs, the same event is produced by God and the human being. The guilt of the sin is not transferred to God because God is the effector of the act, but only the permitter of the sin itself. This is why scripture sometimes attributes evil deeds to God, because God concurs with them. God cooperates with the sinners who commit them, but that does not mean that God is the effectious cause of them or wills them, except according to his consequent will. God allows them and cooperates with them unwillingly in order to preserve the sinner's liberty. End quote. Um, and so while they are similar, if you didn't notice, God is the first cause. He uses second causes. In the libertarian freedom of the will um, schema, God is permitting these um, acts to occur by his consequent will. That is his will to allow or permit libertarian freedom. Um, so there's a sense in which there's two wills in God, and the compatibilistic framework has that as well, but we're going to talk about that later. The difference is that in the position of Arminianism, it is by bare permission that these acts occur rather than by decree. So if you need to go back and listen to what we've explained so far about compatibilism and Calvinism, and then that Roger Olson quote, and what you find is that in Reformed Confessions, the concept of bare permission is rejected. According to Arminianism, God does not will these actions except by his consequent will, which is that he still willed to permit the actions to occur just passively, his permission. Like classical Arminianism, Calvinism affirms that God uses second causes and is still the first cause, and Calvinism likewise rejects that God is the author or approver of sin, but Calvinists would argue that the distinction is that in Calvinism, God is not passively permitting evil for the sake of libertarian freedom, but instead he has these actions serving his purposes. And the compatibilist will critique Arminianism here by saying that while Arminians can say that these permissions are for God's purposes, God is ultimately needing to react to the free choices of men, which takes precedence. The compatibilist will also say that if it has been determined that the consequent will of God will be exercised, that is, he will permit these actions to occur for the sake of maintaining libertarian freedom of the will, then preventing actions to occur becomes quite difficult because all of a sudden you're intervening and preventing that libertarian freedom of the will that you permitted in other instances. So for the compatibilist, it's not by bare permission. In fact, bare permission is specifically rejected in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. In Arminianism, it is by permission that the acts occur, but God is the first cause and he uses second causes. God is not the author or approver of sin, but those sinful actions flows from the sinful nature of creatures, and God has no part in committing the sin in the same way that Arminius above claims. So both positions again affirm that God allows or permits evil 
yet in the libertarian schema, a passive allowance rather than a providential decree of permission is the dividing line. Uh, compatibilists would argue that in this passive allowance rather than a providential decree of permission, it is logically less guided. It lacks meaningful purpose. There is no purpose at its occurrence to begin with, aside from maintaining libertarian freedom of the will. And they would argue that the problem of evil is not solved in this position, despite how libertarian freedom of the will is maintained to try to solve that issue. And I believe I have something on that here in a second, but we're going to move on first. Both positions have the human acting and being culpable as a second cause. So Christensen and his book, What About Free Will? Um, it's a book about compatibilism. uses the narrative of Joseph to explain everything we've been talking about. So we're going to quote him at length here. Quote, as hard as it is to fathom, God can ordain evil without having evil intentions. A key to understanding this apparent dilemma is found by considering the story of Joseph's enslavement by his brothers. When Joseph is promoted to be the prime minister of Egypt many years after his brothers perpetrated their evil against him, they are providentially reunited with him. They stand shocked, suffering guilt and trembling fear before their exalted brother. Then Joseph makes this iconic statement, quote, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in Genesis 50.20. This is a dual or compatibilistic explanation for their actions. Joseph has already acknowledged that his brothers sold him into slavery in Genesis 45.4. But in the verses that follow, he says that God sent him to Egypt as well. See verses 5 and 7 through 9. And then he also has Psalm 105.17 as a cross-reference. So he asks, which was it, his brothers or God? The answer is both. But a more profound point is revealed in the statement. Joseph's brothers acted with evil intention. You meant it for evil, as they themselves recognize in Genesis 50, 15 through 17. Yet God brought about the same result, but with a different intention. His motive was good. Quote, God meant it for good, end quote. Culpability can be attributed to Joseph's brothers because they intentionally purposed evil, and God sovereignly purposed the same event, but his intention was good, and therefore he has no culpability for the evil that occurred. The mechanics of how this is carried out remain a mystery that Scripture does not explain. D.A. Carson observes that God's causal relationship to good and evil is not identical or symmetrical as though he were a moral, that is, neither good nor evil. Since God's fundamental nature is good and not evil, his relationship to good and evil must be asymmetrical. God stands behind what is good in such a way that it is always directly attributed to him, and he stands behind evil only in a distant secondary way that it cannot be directly attributed to him, only to secondary agents or causes. God wills good simply for the sake of good, but when he wills evil, he never does so for the sake of evil, but because it is necessary to achieve some good purpose, end quote. So let's go back to the, the comment about compatibilists will say that the libertarian position does not solve the problem of evil, uh, because that is a major point of contention, right? How do we discuss the problem of evil? Usually libertarian freedom will is evoked saying this freedom of the human will explains the problem of evil. But the compatibilists will say that in the Arminian position of libertarian freedom, the problem of evil is not solved any more than it is in the compatibilistic position. In fact, it still remains a tension in the Christian ethic regardless of what tradition you hold to. So what is the argument? Well, the argument is that in the libertarian freedom framework, 
libertarian freedom is of greater value than the prevention of evil. How so? In libertarianism, God is sufficiently powerful to stop anything from happening, but he doesn't always because of libertarian free will. In fact, we must ask why God prevents or hinders any evil or any act in any sense if libertarian freedom is essential. The compatibilist will also say further when God permits evil in this position of libertarian freedom, it is senseless and without purpose as it is ultimately just to uphold a creature's freedom of the will and may not be necessary for the necessary events in God's plans. That is, uh, plans that are fixed or important. Remember, necessary events are those events that cannot be changed. Christensen illustrates this problem of evil in the Arminian position like this. It is as if there was a police officer who stands by while a homeless man is being beaten to death when he could stop it yet cannot because it would violate the perpetrator's free will. And I think on this point, I would just say, you know, both systems have tensions on the problem of evil and at this level. It is inescapable. I, I don't I don't see how we can avoid just going to the lesson of Job where we're sitting there with Job looking at God, realizing that uh, we are pea-brained creatures who can't possibly fathom the wisdom of God in full. So let's talk about the biblical text for compatibilism. Now, we talked in the last episode, and it, and it may seem a little unfair in the way I'm doing this because I didn't really quote that many texts for the Arminian position because Arminianism has so many because it uses those texts of Scripture that speak to humans making choices and it does so within the framework of incompatibilism or libertarian freedom of the will. So for the Armenian position, it would be quoting all of those texts of scripture where someone makes a choice. And so it seemed like it'd be redundant to just start quoting those things. But for the compatibilist, those texts are also considered. And so the question is, how does the compatibilist defend the position that this free agency occurs in tension with a strong providential sovereignty of absolute sovereignty, if you will. Uh, so let's look at that. The Again, the, the compatibilists will obviously find the free agency text to be appropriate to their position because it holds in tension this position of sovereignty and free agency. But it in particular looks at examples such as Joseph and his brothers where both God and man are moving in the same actions. There is a dual explanation for actions. Some are clear, some are not. And usually the description of Joseph and his brothers are one of the first ones brought up in the discussion because it is it is clear for the compatibilist. Uh, while Joseph's brothers intended their actions for evil, God intended those same actions for good, right? And so let, let's kind of just step back a second. So compatibilism begins with those texts of sovereignty, such as Proverbs 16.9, where we read that, quote, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps, end quote. And such a sentiment is found in other Proverbs, such as 1921, which states, quote, Many are the plans in the minds of men, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Others along the same vein are Proverbs 20, 24, and 21, uh, 1. And Sean D. Wright lists the following text on the point of sovereignty. Um, Deuteronomy 32, 39 where it says, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And then Psalm 135, 6, where it says, the Lord does whatever he pleases him in the heavens and on earth and the seas and all their depths. Um, Psalm 139, 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, 
when as yet there were none of them. Uh, Isaiah 45, 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And then Ephesians 1, 11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that's what right will um, put forward for sovereignty. And then from here, we have the narratives like the one around Joseph, the compatibilist will point to a number of different examples where there is dual agency. So listing a couple that are common. Uh, first, we have this picture of the Assyrians who are deciding to invade Israel. Yet it is God who says that Assyria is his agent in bringing punishment upon Israel in Isaiah 10, 5 through 12. The text indicates that it was God who sent the Assyrians and who wreaked havoc against Israel. Yet at the same time, the Assyrians are held accountable and responsible for their actions, their arrogance, their thirst for blood, and so forth. Furthermore, compatibilists will argue um, from the case of Pharaoh's hardened heart, the sons of Eli, Jonah, and the fish, right, and other events, but three examples become most prominent. The first centers around Judas Iscariot's betrayal of Jesus, uh, which is indicated to be foreknown by God and part of the fulfillment of Scripture. Judas is not only held responsible for his freely chosen actions to betray Jesus, which we see in Matthew 26, 14 through 16, but he is also said to have been influenced by Satan's entrance into him and Luke uh, 22, 3 through 6, while he was also chosen by Jesus himself in John 6, 70 and 17, 12. And this was all fulfillment of the divine plan uh, in Matthew 26, 24 and Mark 14 to 21. A parallel tension with Judas is found in Satan's role in the life of Job. And you see this in chapter one of Job. Notice that in Job's narrative, there are three major agents in his suffering. First, Satan, who issued a challenge to God. Second, God, who allowed Satan to bring suffering to Job, and third, the people groups who attacked Job. Each intent was different, yet the same outcome occurred, that is Job's suffering. So applying that in the same way, we find this full culpability for Judas's actions, and in the accounts regarding Judas's life, we find his desire to betray Jesus to be at work alongside him being chosen by Christ. And this one is a good example because it leads into the other example, which is the crucifixion of Christ. All theologians have recognized that the crucifixion of Christ was not an accident, but a planned event. And yet the event finds itself surrounded by the will of many individuals and agents, some of which who will be called out for their culpability at Pentecost. Peterson and Williams, when speaking on this point, say, quote, Now, if God ordained that the crucifixion of Jesus would take place, we must say that Judas, Pilate, and the others were not free in the libertarian sense of absolute power to choose the contrary. Judas could not have not betrayed Jesus, Herod and the Jews could not have chosen to not be murderous. Does this mean that they were not free? If they acted according to the purpose of God, were they manipulated as if they were no more than pawns? That is the incompatibilist contention. But scripture nowhere suggests such an inference. God did not ordain the actions of Herod or Pilate as if they were puppets. None of those involved in the death of Jesus acted contrary to their wills or in violation of their character. They did as they chose to do. Jesus was crucified because Judas, Herod, and Pilate, and the others conspired to kill him. Their choices were a part of God's divine, eternal plan, but that fact did not remove one bit of human accountability. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility cannot be pitted against one another, end quote. Um, So not only is this an event that shows the compatibility between sovereignty and human will, but we find 
just as well the different intentions and motives at play similar to the narrative of Joseph and his brother. A last example before moving into, you know, foreknowledge and Calvinism is the example of the inspiration of Scripture. Theologically, Christians have upheld the doctrine of verbal inspiration of the Bible, which is the product of human authors, yet the Word of God. Further, Christians have often rejected what is called the dictation theory of inspiration, as it would eliminate the very real and obvious flavors and concerns of the Bible's human authors. And so when we confess the Word of God as being written by humans led by the Spirit, we find a compatibilistic understanding of agency. The role of the Holy Spirit did not remove the human agency necessary for the outcome. Christensen on this point will ask, quote, Is it possible that Paul used libertarian free will to write that which was contrary to God's design? Absolutely not. Paul was not free to write against what God intended, yet he freely wrote what he most wanted to write. And, quote, if one holds to libertarian freedom, it becomes very difficult to see how God guaranteed that the human authors of Scripture would write anything that corresponds to his desires. Maybe they just happened to write everything he intended, but this is so improbable as to render it virtually impossible. Even if God strongly influenced them to write his divine precepts, they could have always resisted this influence, mixing it with their own contrary thoughts and words. Unless God causally determines the words of Scripture in some way, it seems that one is led to a defective view of Scripture's revelation, inspiration, and inerrancy, and its infallible conveyance of divine truth. End quote. So let's talk about foreknowledge and Calvinism, and this section will be shorter. Um, foreknowledge will come back up later again, uh, whenever we specifically talk about predestination. We'll get there when we get there. But as with Arminians, Calvinists agree that God knows everything, and rightly so. Thankfully, we agree there. Further, he knows all things always, and he never increases in knowledge as God is all-knowing and immutable. And so the distinction between Calvinists and classical Arminians on this point of foreknowledge is simply this. In Calvinism, God knows everything that occurs because he has decreed all that will occur. So for Calvinism, foreordination logically comes prior to foreknowledge. And this is a logical order opposed to a chronological order. Um, Kurt Daniel will say, uh, quote, they, foreordination and foreknowledge, are so close and inseparable that the word foreknow is sometimes used in a causative rather than cognitive way, as in Acts 2.23. And 1 Peter 1.20 says that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And the word is literally foreknown. God did not merely foresee the crucifixion, he predestined it, according to Acts 4.27-28 and Luke 22.22, end quote. And that's in... Um, the history and theology of Calvinism, page 215. So Acts 17, 26 speaks briefly on this in that God created humankind through Adam, quote, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of the dwelling place, end quote. So what God has determined will come to pass, quote, for what he has determined shall be done, end quote, in Daniel eleven thirty six, end quote, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done uh, in Acts 4.28. So because of the different understanding between foreordination's relationship with foreknowledge, we again will see those subjects coming back up when it comes to the discussion of predestination, uh, particularly when it comes to the statement of those whom God foreknew, he predestined. That's going to be a big, um, big discussion when we get there. I think that this will wrap up this episode on compatibilism. I managed to keep it around the 30-minute mark. 
I hope I didn't talk too fast. Remember that on your podcasting platforms, you can slow down and speed up, which is a helpful tip if you think that I was talking too fast at some point during this. So that's that. I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. I hope that what we've been discussing so far has been helpful. I know that this episode and the last episode were probably pretty difficult, but don't get discouraged because I believe that this is probably the hardest bit in this whole series. Uh, remember that if you are a patron, you have access to full show notes that are being updated. Uh, right now, we're sitting at 96 pages. Um, you can get these show notes from your patron folder. If you enjoy Christ Secure, you find the materials beneficial and the approach beneficial, prayerfully consider becoming a part of the support team at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the cure. The support team not only gets some perks such as the, the PDFs, and early episodes, but the support team makes all this possible, paying for storage for the podcast, for all the data on the website, and also um, the, the time, the research effort, and the ability to polish up the craft, right? And put more quality into the work. And hopefully that's reflected, but I appreciate all you guys. And again, have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.